but they are trying to subordinate the individual to the collective interest. That's not my interpretation of their words. That's exactly what they said. The reigning assumption, of course, among socialists, just as progressives, is that the collective interests should trump the individual interests. How you get to, you know, 100 million peacetime deaths in the 20th century, which is the, the empirical consequences of socialism, of course. Socialists do what, frankly, a lot of people do, and I think libertarians are guilty of this sometimes, which is when they're advocating something, they always represent it in its, in its idealized form. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 55. Hello, and welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Head over to my podcasts page, culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts. And from there, you can follow me on all the various social media out there. And join my Eating Liberty Facebook group, as well as subscribe to my YouTube channel. While you are on that podcast's page, you can give me your email address and I'll send you a free muffins e-cookbook, Foolproof Muffins, recipes that work every time. And with that email address, I'll send you one or two emails a week. You can support the Culinary Libertarian Podcast by visiting the Patreon, Bitcoin, or PayPal logos also on the podcast page. I have a levels at the Patreon page, but any support is appreciated to help keep this podcast going. You can also purchase a coffee mug from my Cranky Without Coffee mug store, including the No Candy Corn mug. Yes, it's terrible. Not the mug, the candy corn. Folks, don't get mad at the messenger, but Christmas is coming. It is Christmas December. And that means it's time to start thinking about shopping. Get it done now so you can enjoy the chaos later. Buy a personalized letter from Santa for your son or daughter through my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com letter. Your child will receive a real letter, and the envelope will be stamped from the North Pole and can be addressed to your child. The website lets you add information about your child to make the letter as personalized as you wish. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com letter to learn more about getting a letter from Santa for your children. culinarylibertarian.com letter. My guest today is Chris Colton. Chris is a Ph.D. student in history at the University of Florida and is a regular contributor to the Mises Wire and Austro-Libertarian magazine. Chris is also a 2018 Mises Institute Research Fellow and an economic historian, as well as writer and host of the Historical Controversies podcast. Chris has written an article for the summer 2019 issue of the Austro-Libertarian magazine entitled Crisis and Utopia, the Development of Socialism. It is about this article and the subject of the origins of socialism, what the vision was and how it evolved, that we're going to talk about today. Chris, 
Thank you for joining me today on the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. I want to start first with a little bit of your background. I just was telling the people about your work as a fellow at the Mises Institute, but let's just a little bit, what is that? And how did you find your way, we, we say, into the liberty movement, which sounds, I don't know, just it sounds odd, but let's stick with it for now. How did you get here? What was your road? Sure. Well, let me answer the fellowship question first, because it's simple and it's a good plug for for a wonderful Mises Institute program. The fellowship is uh, just a a summer, uh, basically research fellowship in residence where you stay at the Mises Institute for the summer. Uh, It's predominantly for graduate students, though we've had some undergraduate students and uh, sometimes there are people who already have their PhDs there. Uh, but it's predominantly people who are working on their PhDs and they go there for the summer and they work on research, something that ideally will either be published or go into a dissertation. So if you have any liter, um, excuse me, if you have any listeners who are, uh, in that, uh, area of their life, they're, they're going to grad school or thinking about grad school, they should absolutely apply for the Mises fellowship. It's a wonderful experience. I've done it three times now. Uh, and it has been tremendously beneficial for me. Um, as far as my entry into the liberty movement, I'm going to be one of your rare guests, especially for my uh, generation. I'm 32. I'm a millennial. Uh, I was not a Ron Paul baby. I was actually very opposed to Ron Paul at the time. Admire him today, of course. Uh, but I kind of took this long and arduous route through Thomas Sowell. Uh, Basic Economics was the first economics book I ever read. And for that reason, I was actually very devoted almost religiously to, you know, monetarist Chicago school economics. I read that. I read a few other books, uh, got introduced to Milton Friedman. I remember I went to a Ron Paul event and argued with a guy afterwards about, you know, monetary policy. And, you know, I was arguing that deflation was this horrible thing. And he was saying, no, deflation's a good thing. And I didn't really understand the argument. And it was years later, I think it was a Tom Woods lecture on YouTube that I discovered. I didn't know who Tom Woods was. And he made some some little uh, point about the if you woke up tomorrow and your bank account could buy more stuff, like would that really be a bad thing? And I didn't have an answer to that. So that's when I started reading uh, the Austrians. And it was only about five years ago, I think, maybe. Yeah, about five years ago, I had what I call my Mises summer. Well, I read three of Mises's four major treatises, and the next summer I wrote the I read the fourth one, which was Human Action. It was the last of his major works I read, uh, and that just converted me on the spot. I just that 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 Mises summer after I read Theory of Money and Credit, Socialism, and Theory and History, I was I was converted. I was an Austrian. Um, I already I already had libertarian leanings. I I. I I think instinctively, even like in high school, I kind of gravitated toward those concepts. But for Austrian economics and this like Rothbardian style libertarianism, um, it, it was it was just reading those those works of Mises, uh, which was after the Ron Paul movement was already kind of winding down after the twenty twelve a couple of years after the twenty twelve election. Well, that is some way in, and and to just. <laughs> Take those big bites of Mises. That's the thing, and I'm, it's even his easy work isn't necessarily light reading. No, it's only, no, it's it's, only light reading compared to others. It's <laughs> so heavy it's, reading. You know, my not, one my one attempt at, at some Austrian reading prior to that, when I was still on the the Thomas Sowell bandwagon, I still, by the way, love Thomas Sowell. I consider him after Mises my greatest intellectual influence, but I disagree with him on like 
so many major issues now. But I tried reading Road to Serfdom uh, when I was in that phase, and I put it down halfway through. I, I just I, I respect Hayek now. I have works by him that I do greatly admire, but Road to Serfdom was just such a trudge for me. And compared to Hayek, I actually found Mises quite readable. Um, the theory, <laughs> theory of Money and Credit was my first of his major works I read, and that is the most daunting. I, it was definitely not the one I should have started with. I'm, I'm working my way through a few of them. I've got, like everybody else, I've got far more books open, either for real or digital, than I can possibly read at once. And so <laughs> it's just I, I s- sort of roll through half a dozen different books in the course of a week. Well, that's huh. admirable. So in the intro, I mentioned the article you wrote, Crisis and Utopia, the Development of Socialism, which is in the summer 2019 issue of Austro-Libertarian Magazine. Uh, now, the origins of socialism, at least as far as I'm concerned, now I, I'm, I'm probably like nearly everybody. I have no real idea what the origins of socialism is. As far as I know, invented with Karl Marx. Just boom, there it is. So, well, I found out that A, that's not at all true. It's been around for longer than that. Uh, And the other thing that was, I I guess, enlightening in some way that if you think about it, it's of course true that it has a much more complex history uh, than one would have thought. So with, with all of this really trudgery, um, which is me making bad English, <laughs> you have managed to coalesce all of this into something readable and comprehensible. And to you, a big hats off, because that's amazing. Well, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Your article covers a lot, but there are some points I want to ask you about. Uh, and then we'll get into maybe how Elizabeth Warren fits into this. So let's just jump in. Sure. Can I um, say what I, you know, for the article, for people who may not have read it, um, what I wanted to do, and we can talk about this if if you'd like, but this article was a way for me to try to address three, basically I had three topics that I wanted to cover in this magazine of the Austro-Libertarian magazine, um, this issue, excuse me, uh, which was just about socialism. Uh, one was I wanted to demonstrate, you know, kind of combat this myth that the fascists were not socialist, which I have some other articles that you can find on Mises Wire pushing back against this. This is a, a very, especially as an historian, you know, my, my fiance is a card carrying Democrat, um, but her mom is a Holocaust historian. When I told her people believe that the Nazis were capitalists, she was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's absurd to her. Right. Like, so th- this myth that, that the Nazis and the Italian fascists were not socialists, that I wanted to attack that. And so that was part of the, the idea behind it. I also wanted to talk about the different um, objections to socialism. Uh, you have the incentive problem, the calculation problem and the knowledge problem, which would be the classical economists and then Mises and, and Hayek. And kind of that was for the, the Austrians who I, I, I do agree that Mises' calculation argument is the most logically irrefutable, irrefutable objection to socialism, but sometimes I feel like they dismiss too readily the validity of the incentive problem and the knowledge problems and the derivative insight. So I kind of wanted to throw those in there. Um, and then, of course, I wanted to combat what you mentioned up front, which is this idea that Marxism is socialism, socialism is Marxism, or that's the origins of it, and show the complexities of these ideas and how they relate to 
you know, the Elizabeth Warrens and the Bernie Sanders of the world up to today. So this article was kind of a way for me to cram all three of those topics into one. Well, and I think you've done a good job. And it's certainly uh, as a as a piece to read, to think and get more information, it's a great springboard into <laughs> just dozens and dozens of rabbit holes of more information. Oh, yeah. So you wrote that St. Simon, and maybe it's Simone, the father of socialism founded less of an economic theory than a religious cult. And that's pretty strong stuff. But as the article shows, it's not unfounded. So let's start, just elaborate a little bit on that idea. Right. So St. Simon, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly either. I've, I've only seen these words in, in print. It's the bane of my existence as a reader. I, I mispronounce things all the time uh, that I read. But St. Simon... Uh, he was inspired by the Enlightenment, as many people were. And this was a time, just to put it in historical context, uh, after the Enlightenment, you had people really kind of grasp on to some element or another. And I'm critical of historians often as like painting the Enlightenment in a one-sided way where that's like, oh, well, the Enlightenment was John Locke and Adam Smith. Well, that was a part of it. Or the Enlightenment was Newton. Well, that's a part of it. Or it was Darwin. Well, that's a part of it. Right. And they kind of present it where it's just either what they like or what they dislike and they don't put it in the full context. Uh, so the Enlightenment is a broad array of ideas that kind of sit or center around various notions of rationality, of course. Uh, but the one that St. Simon was fixated on uh, was this scientific rationality in the natural sciences, and he was inspired by Newton and Newton's one law of gravity. And so he kind of took this in a religious direction, which he wasn't the only one to do things like this coming out of the Enlightenment, but he thought, okay, well, in society, prior to the modern era that he was speaking in, which was the early 19th century, um, Prior to this, the church handled certain like social functions, right? But now that we have science, we have Newton's one law of gravity, we need to replace the church with something else that can serve the church's functions. And he proposed a council of Newton. And the idea was here was basically central planning, right? It was rational governance by people who were following the Enlightenment's scientific ideas like Newton and Darwin. Um, and they were going to dictate what form of society we need top down, right? So that was his Council of Newton. So it was more of a religious cult in the fact that he literally was saying this cult of Newton should replace the religious structures that, um, that were then prevailing, right? The Catholic Church or whatever else it might be. And I think... Well, there, there's, there's a lot of ways that shows up in today, but one of the observations I was thinking when I was reading it, and I'm going to invent a phrase, the St. Simeonians, <laughs> sorry, uh, seemed to me to be a bit like the Wilsonian progressives, that the educated elite will handle all the hard stuff. Is Now, there's a secularism to Wilson, but is that at least some kind of a fair comparison? Absolutely, it's a fair comparison. In fact, I, I was thinking about this just a few minutes ago when I was reviewing this article because I recently read um, the book, uh, Daniel Rogers' book, Atlantic Crossings, which is about the exchange of progressive ideas across the Atlantic, European and, and American exchange of these ideas. 
uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And you can kind of build a taxonomy of progressives that really resembles the taxonomy of these early socialists, the collectivist um, ideals, uh, but also the the uh, appeal to the elites, the ideas that the, these intellectual elites should craft policies and to decide the structures of society. And that's absolutely what uh, St. Simon and the St. Simonians believed, as well as many other uh, socialist thinkers. So the, the progressive and socialist overlap is remarkable. And of course, this comes up in the article. Um, I, don't, I don't compare it to the progressives, but I talk about people like George Bernard Shaw and the Fabian socialists. And these were right there in the progressive movements later in the century. So progressivism was absolutely an outgrowth of socialism. Unequivocally, mm-hmm. unambiguously, if that's if that's what you were thinking, like maybe it's this ambiguous, um, under the radar connection. It, it, it's it's unambiguous, unequivocal. Um, they are in many cases the same people. One of my wonderments from the article, and I sort of wrote something here that might be a little bit unfair, was the idea of the continued suppression of human desires and wants and innovative spirit must come with the price of the individual. Now that's almost like just silly to say because it just doesn't really mean anything. But I want to give socialism the benefit of the doubt and say that the goal was not the suppression of the spirit, but to borrow, uh, Ben Lewis also wrote an article on the same issue, uh, to borrow his words from a paragraph, socialism is to give, quote, a more fundamental conflict over who man actually is, what social conditions lead to his improvement, and how far that improvement can advance, end quote. So how do we go from this almost hope for man's betterment to thousands of people dying? Yeah, so of course socialists aren't going to say that their ideas are are meant to suppress the you know, like human spirit, or I, I don't remember exactly how the quote was worded. Of course, they're not going to claim that. Uh, but they are trying to subordinate the individual to the collective interest. And that is that is explicit. That's something I bring up and stress throughout the article. But that's that's not my interpretation of their, their words. That's exactly what they said. This was positioned as a critique to the classical economics, uh, classical economic ideas that centered on individual self-interest. And the original socialist thinkers of the, the forebears of socialism being Sismondi and St. Simon, chief among them, is this idea that there is a general or a collective interest that is in conflict with the individual uh, interest of of its constituent parts. And the, the the reigning assumption, of course, among socialists, just as progressives, is that the collective interests should trump the individual interests. So in that sense, I don't think it's an incorrect interpretation to say that they want to suppress the individual spirit. That's clearly what they wanted to do. But they're gonna they're gonna sell it in nicer terms than that. And this is where, you know, Marx's ideas for in, in uh, for for instance, is uh, that once we realize socialism, the, there will be no conflict of interest between the individual and the collective. That's, that's rooted in his theory of class consciousness, is that we only have these conflicting interests because we don't have socialism. And so that's, that's how they kind of square that array. So how you get to, you know, 100 million peacetime deaths in the 20th century, which is the, the empirical consequences of socialism, of course, uh, I, I think is the fact that socialism, socialists do what, frankly, a lot of people do, and I think 
libertarians are guilty of this sometimes, which is when they're advocating something, they always represent it in its, in its idealized form. So it's, uh, I always point this out when I'm arguing anarchy for, for people, people who defend government. They're always arguing an, an ideal conception of government, and they're comparing it to, uh, at least to be generous to them, to realistic conceptions of anarchy. Well, the same thing. Idealized versions of socialism compared to real-world uh, ideas of capitalism, which would really be mixed market economies, right? And so that that's the issue, is there's a, a difference between the idealized and the realized, I think, with socialism, where um, they're trying to craft institutions for human beings as they think human beings should be, rather than trying to craft institutions for human beings as they actually are, which was the classical economics approach centered around individual self-interest, right? Was saying we need free economies, we need free markets, free enterprise, not because human beings should be self-interested, but because human beings are self-interested, right? And so that's the difference as I see it. Crafting institutions for human beings as we would like them to be versus crafting institutions for human beings as they are in reality. Well, you know, we go back to the very beginning, and this is the problem from, from day one if you're a Genesis reader. And look at, in the beginning, we had this problem and it's never gone away. That's a pretty articulate answer. And I, uh, that's good. I appreciate that. Thank you. I want to pose an idea that might be even more unkind than the previous one and tell me what you think. Okay. Reading your piece on cultural Marxism, and I had this idea that maybe some of the faithful to socialism are faithful because it asks nothing of them. It is for the intellectual lazy. Now, that's a bit zippy, and I know it, but in the broadest strokes, do you think that that tracks? Absolutely. So I've, I've brought this analogy up uh, in the past. I brought this up in a class discussion. When, actually, when we were discussing this book, Atlantic Crossings, that I mentioned, I brought this up recently. I, I always like to ask people, why do you think flat earth theory is circulating? And I think a lot of times it's exaggerated by trolls, but there are, there are actually, it's, it's kind of remarkable that there are people who are believing that the earth is flat, that the idea of a round earth is a conspiracy. And, a, and so I like to pose the question, why, why do such people exist? And it's because there's no cost in believing that for most people. There's no cost in, in believing. How, how is my day-to-day -day activity going to change if I believe that the earth is flat? I'm still going to drive to work. I'm going to drive to school. Like, it doesn't matter. If I'm a pilot of an aircraft, it might matter. Those people I, I think need to understand the concept of a round earth because their navigation depends on it. But 99.999% of the population, their day-to-day -day lives don't change one iota if they believe that the earth is flat versus believing the earth is round. Well, I think a lot of these intellectual ideas of socialism, progressivism, um, statism in general are similar to that. Look at this with the, the global warming debate, right? That people talk about um, the catastrophes that are coming with climate change, and then they propose policies that are easy for them to propose because their day-to-day -day life, at least as they see it, um, isn't changed, not by the policies, but by the activism, right? The, the, the proposal of it. So Ryan McMakin has this great article on, uh, on it recently about how these policies would mostly affect poor people. I bring this up with, with sweatshops, the, the left's opposition to sweatshops is based on the fact that they're immune from the consequences of it, right? They can pat themselves on the back and feel morally superior because they 
they cry out morally against sweatshops because that that looks so evil to them by their modern wealthy standards of of western civilization but of course they're immune from the consequences that when they pressure a, a company to remove sweatshops they're relegating all the people that worked there to the the whatever option that they thought was worse than sweatshops right like it's absurd but they're immune from the consequences now this isn't to say that socialists are immune to the consequences of socialism of course once it's actually put in a policy that's not the case but these middle ground policies to use uh mises's um article or concept of this uh middle ground road to socialism uh, I think he has this article, middle of the road policies lead to socialism, is so many of these policies are ones that they're at least removed from the immediate consequences of, right? Tax the rich. Well, of course, there are consequences that they'll see from that, but they're so indirect, they don't realize them. Uh, and so I think that's that's a big part of it is uh, also in academia, is, uh, the, the affinity for these far left policies among academics and intellectuals is because they can speak about them in the abstract. They don't affect their real, real like world day to day lives. We can talk about how we should abolish money, but they're still going to pull out their dollars when they want to buy a donut at Dunkin Donuts. And then, of course, they'll say, well, that's the society we live in. But yes, but it's easy to say we should abolish money when it doesn't actually affect us in any way. It's just bouncing around these stupid ideas as abstractions. So I, I do think that the immunity from the consequences of these these ideas um, is part of the reason they believe them. But of course, ultimately, when policies are put into place because of these ideas, then you can't be immune to the consequences of them. And, and you know, Venezuela shows that right now. Do you think it's it's kind of either an elite or a legislative virtual signaling? Look how much I care. I'm going to make policies that don't impact me one little bit. Oh, of course it is. Yeah, that's my sweatshop example is is my favorite one of that. Um, it's so it's so rich Westerners, which is virtually all Westerners by global standards. Uh, can can make a moral outcry about something that they're not involved in, don't and and are immune to the consequences of, and they can pop their champagne because they got Nike to remove their sweatshops and talk about how you know what a great thing they've done and how moral they are, and it's just virtue signaling. While there are people who are you know forced to go from those sweatshops to whatever they consider to be worse, and they're completely ignorant of that, so it's just virtue signaling. Of course, it's virtue signaling. Um, that may not be the roots of all of it. I do believe that there are people that sincerely believe these things, right? I don't believe that it's. It, I, I don't believe it's like these these people on the left are just. Um, you know, just think, well, well, obviously I know that there's going to be all these negative consequences of climate policies and, you know, anti-sweatshop movements. I know that that's going to lead to bad things, but I'm going to say, I'm going to take this position anyway, because it's going to make me look good to these idiots. Like, I don't believe that, that it's that. I think it's more willful ignorance, benign neglect, like that kind of thing. But of course it is rooted you know, Thomas Sowell has this great quote about, it's hard to reason with people who are enjoying a sense of moral superiority. So I think that that's, that's a big part of it. Sowell has a way with quips. Um, so many pithy quotes. I, I think that that probably, at least for now, addresses the issue of why are or how, 
how do you reach the, the, the Elizabeths and the AOCs? I'm not mentioning Bernie anymore because I think he's done with this heart attack. But that's, that's an interesting point, and that just makes it even harder. Well, of course, and, and if I can just add to that, I don't think you can reach the, the Elizabeth Warrens and the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders of the world because they benefit directly from these policies. You, if you did convince them genuinely that their policies would be destructive and harmful, um, I, I, outside of somebody that really is just like purely noble, and I don't think those people are are in political office very often, uh, <laughs> it's not going to change anything for them because look, Bernie Sanders has made himself a multimillionaire by running on a running for president on a platform of socialism. AOC went from being a bartender to you know, or what? What a House of Representatives or one hundred sixty grand a year, something stupid like that. Well, they they themselves a raise, like sixty days in, she got a raise, yeah. so she might be buck seventy, buck eighty. And and they and they of course they they get those like they get payouts for that even after you know you only have to have one term in office and you basically get a lifetime salary. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Of course, they're they're remarkably self-interested. So those people you're not going to convince because their self-interest is wrapped up in peddling lies, um, it, whether they know that they're lies or not. But of course, there it, it is possible to reach uh, the, you know, the voters, the constituents, average people who are inclined to socialism. You can't reach those people. Maybe not all of them, right? But, but, you know, I, I've converted my, my fair share of socialists um, in my time. So, so that's really the question. How do you convert those people? To put it into an economic question, how do you incentivize them to change their behavior? And the answer to that is not just <laughs> another episode, but I think that that's, I think you're right. I think they're not going right. to be changed until they're incentivized to change. And when you've got three houses peddling this crap, yeah, it's going to be a tough sell. Yeah. Uh, on Dave Smith's podcast, part of the problem, and this isn't pitching Dave, but he does a, he does a good job. Sure. Uh, he was he made a pretty good comment that the millennials, you know, present company excluded, are complaining about all these problems, but they're the ones who've been been yeah, who have been born into more affluence and abundance than is almost imaginable. Mm -hmm. And so when AOC says, we don't see this, we don't see this American abundance, and she's tweeting about how terrible it is, it's it's just a head smack. Like, really? How do you not see this? So the combination of the keeping up with the Joneses and the disappointment of having to work for things, easy credit may have had a role in the seemingly endless stream of stuff. But how do we take the politicians at the word about free stuff and tie this together with your peace and cultural Marxism or is, is, are these two things just not related? I, I don't think I have the answer to that. And part of it is, I mean, I have to tell you, like I, I have moved more and more away from like politics in general. Like I, I, I like the intellectual stuff, the economics. Uh, and I think that's important, but the politics are so toxic. It always feels um, I, I always just feel defeated in it. And even, you know, I, like I said, I, I do have a handful of people I've, I've converted to good ideas, but it, it's just, I, it always feels like an uphill battle and it's just psychologically like it's not for me, my personality doesn't fit. So I leave that to, you know, the Tom Woods of the world. How many people has he, um, got, kind of brought around to libertarian ideas with his platform? So there are people for that. They're better, they're better at it on large scale than I am. Individual conversations. I'm great, but but the, this large scale, 
like that having the you know the Tom Woods podcast or you know Lou Rockwell founding the Mises Institute things like that that really do bring people over to these ideas those are the those are the guys you want to ask those questions um because if I knew that answer I would be doing something very different with my life I think well you're still a young guy so maybe there's maybe maybe this is 15 years down the road who knows yeah who knows let's get back just to the socialism in general so you mentioned socialism's horrors on Facebook and two things will happen. You'll get rebuffed with, that wasn't real socialism, or you'll sure. get cheered. What is or is not real socialism is beyond my intent for this episode, but I want to bring up the deaths. And there sure. was a lot of deaths under socialism, numbers which, frankly, are impossible to comprehend. It just You just can't figure it out. I mean, you say that 16 million people died in the Soviet Union, well, you know, so the numbers at, are almost so large that they take away from the the impact of them, well, right? That's, yeah. So you go to say you go to Michigan football, and and the, and Ohio State Day, there's a hundred thousand people in the stadium, or at the swamp, or at um, in, in Tallahassee, or pick any of your stadiums, big. Pac-10, ACC, SEC, Big Ten stadiums, that's a lot of people. Multiply that by hundreds to get even close to that number, and it's just like, oh, this is just silly. So it's just uh, unfathomable, which <laughs> I mispronounce our purpose because I can't say it right. So well, this is why I think, you know, I, not, to, not to interrupt you, but I think one of the more compelling cases that you find made are the ones that really deal with the individual experiences. Look at Gulag Archipelago. Um, this is really, you're, you're dealing with the experiences of socialism, not the sheer numbers, right? You can get, no, you can get, well, I mean, not accurate numbers, but you can get ideas or estimates of the amount of people that went through the gulag system. But what really, I think speaks to people are the experiences attached to that, um, as Solzhenitsyn did, um, and as other people who've written, you know, memoirs and experiences have done, people, you know, uh, Mises Institute has had speakers from Venezuela. Um, you have, you know, North Korean refugees that, that give speaking tours. Those things, I think, are just in terms of the effectiveness of argument, they're far more compelling to people, far more compelling to me um, than, than just the sheer numbers of the deaths, uh, because it's divorced from emotion. It's just a statistic. So that's always... That's always my, my thought with it. So Solzhenitsyn is a great resource, uh, even in the summer issue. I'm gonna, I'm, I didn't write the issue. You and, and CJ put it together, but I'm. Well, I, I didn't. Just to be clear, uh, CJ's the editor. He is the the man behind the achievement. It's, I just contribute articles. I, I, yeah. I appreciate what you're saying. I just don't want to, you know, take credit that that CJ sure. deserves. No, I, I appreciate that. It's. This issue, and I haven't just. I'm I am over the moon with this thing, and I can't tell enough people about it. There is an article in the summer issue, and by the way, there will be uh, an excerpt of your article and an affiliate link for the Austro Libertarian magazine on the show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com/slash fifty-five. The number of dead just being a statistic. It makes it really difficult to grasp as as a thing. And the, there was a, and I don't remember the name of the man. I'm sorry, I forgot who you are. Um, there's an article that a man wrote an introduction for for his grandfather's letter. Yeah, I taught it. He was, he was a, a summer fellow with me uh, at the Mises the, Institute this summer. His, his grandfather was in Lithuania 
and mm-hmm. is explaining his firsthand observations, very eloquently written. And I can only imagine hearing this speech given. So that's that's a really powerful example of one person's sure. experience over the course of years as an underground freedom fighter about mm-hmm. what socialism brings. But here's here's what I struggle with. When you talk about this information, and we have, we know this happened, why do you suppose so many current advocates of socialism simply refuse that information? Chris, before you explain why so many people don't believe the numbers, I want to let the people know about Liberty Classroom. Folks, there is an excellent chance that your education either glossed over socialism, if it was mentioned at all, or they told you just the parts they wanted you to hear. There is, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. Liberty Classroom offers audio and video courses presented by college professors such as Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Bob Murphy, and Jeffrey Herbner, who has been a guest on this podcast, each experts in his field, covering a variety of courses in history, politics, and economics, topics you didn't get or didn't get correctly. Liberty Classroom courses are short, designed to be just long enough for the commute home or preparing dinner. Bite back against the failed education from the state. And if you subscribe for the master level, which is a lifetime subscription to all the courses made and all the courses to be made, as well as other bonuses, I'm going to add a few of my own. Buy the master level subscription and get two half-hour Skype calls with me about cooking or baking or menu planning, a copy of my fantastic fall recipes, an e-cookbook which has over 75 recipes good for all year round, and an herbs and spices ebook. Use my affiliate link, culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. Now, let's hear from Chris. That's, that's a question for the ages. Um, I have my ideas on why people are drawn to socialism, and they're probably rooted in a lot of the things that, that we hear in you know, conservative or libertarian critiques. I think that the education system is a big part of that, um, both public school and higher education. Um, uh, academic culture is, is moving farther to the left and we have, you know, this general American culture that everybody needs to be funneled through university education. And you, you absorb these ideas in the abstract, um, over time you, you become more distant to these experiences, but it's also the exposure. Uh, And this is where, like, I think media has, has a lot to do with it is, um, between media and, and uh, education, particularly higher education, academia, um, you just don't give it attention, right? When we teach classes on on the Holocaust, we we don't, as we should, uh, but we don't teach classes so often on communism. In fact, I was talking a couple years back to a professor of history at the University of Memphis who who goes to the Austrian Economics Research Conference every year, and uh, so he's he's libertarian. And um, he wanted to teach uh, a class on socialism, and he got pushback from his colleagues. This is a tenured professor who, by the way, grew up under the Soviet Union. 
Um, and he got pushback from his colleagues because they were worried he would, you know, be biased by teaching socialism in a negative light. Now, you know that if they're going to teach, if some, you have uh, programs teaching classes in capitalism, Cornell, for instance, where you have this ridiculously polemical, I don't even want to use the word scholar, even though he, he technically is, uh, a Baptist at Cornell. Um, and they teach oh. histories of capitalism, and it's just nobody. You can tell nobody's telling them like, "Are you te- are you um, teaching a negative view of capitalism?" Like, of course, of course, that's what they're doing. They're remarkably polemical, right? So, but you want to t- you actually have a former Soviet citizen teaching uh, a class on socialism, and they're worried that they're going to teach it negative, right? So that stuff, of course, it comes through, and all of this stuff I think coalesces. It's not like it, it, very few people I think are going through the system and they just have a a professor who says, here's my argument for why socialism is a good thing. And they're just, they're just buying it. They're absorbing it uh, little by little, piece by piece. And the way that I think a lot of them are doing it in academia, and this may be my own kind of one-sided per- perspective as a historian with the new field history of capitalism. Uh, and I wrote an article on Mises Wire about this. And m- what I usually say is the history of capitalism is basically the history of why capitalism is bad. In practice, uh, and and so what they're doing now is they're they're not talking about socialism; they're talking about capitalism, and they're defining it so broadly that capitalism is a, they you know they're not doing this as a concerted effort or like this is something that they're deliberately ambiguous about. But their implicit definition of capitalism basically encompasses everything except outright totalitarian communism. And so they're never advocating socialism directly in these works, right? They're just critiquing capitalism in such a way that the the default position, if you accept their arguments, must be socialism. And that, that is represented in these arguments like the Nazis were capitalists that I mentioned earlier and things like that are just the general critiques of capitalism where people aren't really proposing, a lot of people aren't really proposing um, socialism is a direct alternative, at least not a lot of these people aren't doing that. But of course, what, what are you left with? And so then you do have people that are saying, oh, well, we need democratic socialism, Bernie Sanders and AOC and all this stuff. And it seems so much more palatable to these people because of the, the you know, lifetime for, for young people, lifetime of absorption of these critiques of capitalism and and the omission of similar critiques of socialism that are actually rooted in, in you know, <laughs> recent historical experience or even present experience when you look at places like Venezuela that just they're not getting as much attention. I think that's right. It's it is an easy question to answer uh, ask, but it is a difficult a, question to oh answer. Oh my, so much so. Yeah, I think we've gotten a good head in on this article, which is really the thing I wanted to talk about. And I want people to, um, dear reader, go read this excerpt because it is just, it's it's so good. The whole issue is fantastic, but it's really worth, worth checking out. So since this is the culinary, the culinary libertarian show, we're going to change gears a little bit here and lighten up a little bit. Okay. So of the five flavors, sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami, which one do you prefer the most? I don't even know what umami is. Um, and I will preface my answer by saying that you unintentionally invited possibly the pickiest eater in the world on your program. You haven't met um, my daughter. I, 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 people have been telling me stuff like that all the time. 
And in the contest of pickiness, I've always won. So <laughs> I, I just, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a picky, picky eater. But I have a sweet tooth, so sweet would be it. Um, I, I, I have three bags of different kinds of candy on my work desk here. Um, so always sweet. Hey, what's your favorite food? Steak. I'm an adult man. That's, of course, a steak, medium rare. What's your least favorite food? Uh, I do not eat any fruits or vegetables. That excludes a lot. That I, I I'm a I'm a picky eater. My my fruit and vegetable uh, consumption quite literally is confined to tomato sauces, um, and uh, like the garlic that seasons things like garlic bread. That's that's as close as I get to salads. Wow, what gets you excited? What gets me excited? Excuse mm-hmm. me. Uh, yes. About food or anything else? <laughs> oh, that's. That's a, that's a tough question. I don't know. I'm I'm a I'm kind of like I have a passionate demeanor by nature, so I get excited by like just any kind of simple intellectual conversation. I can get just as passionate about a, a debate over you know comic book characters as I can a debate over these intellectual ideas we're discussing in this show. So I I guess any anything that that I find intellectually engaging. Okay, what turns you off? I would say meaningless, like empty socialization. I, I'm an introvert. I think that's the way I look at introversion. I like socializing with people, but the uh, meaningless formalities that that people engage in uh, in social environments, I just it, it doesn't do it for me. What sound do you love? What sound do I love? Mm. I that, I don't have an answer for that. Right. What sound do you hate? <laughs> Uh, probably any of the, the typical grading nails on a chalkboard thing, generally repetitive sounds too, um, uh, like loud breathing. Uh, you know, I have a dog in the neighborhood that barks, um, in like this very rhythmic pattern. Any of these repetitive sounds, I fixate on them. They drive me crazy. All right. And lastly, what is your favorite food indulgence? My favorite food indulgence. I, I my favorite food is steak, but my favorite indulgence is probably uh, candy in general. And I just eat a ton of taffy. I love taffy. Yeah. There's this Family Guy joke of Adam West. He's like, "I'm a man who loves his taffy," and that speaks to me. <laughs> well, Chris, those are. Interesting answers. Do you have any book recommendation? And this is asking a libertarian for book references. I was going <laughs> to wrong say, thing. Well, I, but, a historian as well, book yeah. heavy field. <laughs> Confine yourself to three book recommendations for people who find this idea interesting and want to learn more about it. Okay, for people who might want to be introduced to libertarian or Austrian economic ideas. Uh, I would say you have to, these answers might be obvious to, to a lot of your listeners, For a New Liberty by Rothbard is is certainly uh, going to be up there. Uh, I would say something like Planning for Freedom by Mises, which is a collection of essays that are more introductory than than his staple works. Like it'd be easy to say human action or man, economy, and state, but at the end of the day, those those would not be introductory works. Planning for Freedom would be. Um, that's where you have essays like Profit or Loss, so the one I mentioned earlier, middle-of-the-ground policies lead to socialism. Uh, and, of course, Economics in One Lesson 
would be a great introduction to Austrian economics as well. So his introduction, introductory works, um, I will say that. Um, let me let me give three non-libertarian suggestions though, just because I, I like to like to give these as well. Sure. Um, well, this is actually an article I have on Mises Mises.org. Uh, I think all libertarians should read the book On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, that probably no other book I've ever read has been in conversation with so many other books that I've read. Uh, it's just a wonderful work about the psychology of killing. Um, and this, I think more than any other wor- work, pushed me over the edge from conservatarian that was concerned about Ron Paul's foreign policy to anti-intervention, uh, like borderline pacifist, um, you know, anti-war libertarian, um, even though the guy who wrote it is a career military officer. Uh, very important book. Uh, Chasing the Scream, best book I've ever read for a general overview of the drug war. And even though at the end he doesn't come to full libertarian conclusions, uh, it, it, it just hits the drug war um, from every angle that it needs to be critiqued or examined. Uh, and then, of course, the one that I think a lot of libertarians need to read, How to Win Friends and Influence People. <laughs> or I say libertarians, yeah. but frankly, Everybody. anybody that, that spends too much of their time and their life in politics. Because uh, I think politics teaches you the opposite of those principles. But that's, that's a book that, that everybody should read at some point. Uh, but libertarians want to go out and proselytize. Um, think about that book, right? I mean, it has lessons for that. Uh, so how to win friends and influence peoples. And I, and I have a, an article on Mises.org listing all three of those books as non-libertarian recommendations. Dale Carnegie is fabulous. Oh, I, I mean, classic, right? My, uh, my stepfather was uh, a realtor. My stepfather was a realtor in the post-Carter economic policy of Reagan years, when you couldn't give a house away, man, oh man, oh man, he went in every day and he just, you know, and finally things turned around a little bit, but you now his, he, he had, he was a salesman. He just, I think sure. there are some people who are better adept just because they're born into it. And he, he had a, a way with people and he could just, you know, I don't know what it was. It was, I, he, Part of it was from the reading and from his training, but I think part of it was just endemic to him. And Some of and, its personality, but it can, I think, be developed because, you know, I worked in sales for years. I, I think some of it is kind of instinctive and, and just personality driven, but you can develop it and perfect it. And that's where Del Carnegie and when you're talking sales, even people, you know, Zig Ziglar and mm-hmm. um, people like that, that can help out with. I want to give one more recommendation. I'm sorry. You, you really opened up a can of worms here. I should have listened to this in my first three because uh, I was just trying you know, the titles that come to mind are the, the obvious ones. Uh, but instead of uh, economics in one lesson, since everybody knows that, uh, the book I like to plug for libertarian legal theory uh, is The Enterprise of Law by Bruce Benson. This is one of the most important um, books in like anarchist theory I've ever read. It shaped my thinking heavily. I don't know why it didn't come to, to mind earlier, but I'm looking at my bookshelf and I saw it. And I said, I can't, I can't not mention that because that's one that a lot of libertarians don't even know about, but it's tremendous. It's such a good book. Enterprise of Law by Bruce Benson. I'm not high on the uh, hierarchy of libertarians, but that's a book I haven't even heard of. So I'm going to go look for that. Uh, I, I like these. And, and the law thing is something that is still, well, it's another one of those rabbit holes I've just not gone down. But that's probably Le- one I need to. 
legal theory, I think, is the biggest um, gap in most young uh, and even older uh, libertarian anarcho-capitalists of the like Rothbard tradition, where generally the solution for how would, how would society do X is an economic answer because of the Austrian economics connection. But at the end of the day, legal theory fills the gaps that economics can't. How would a specific dispute be adjudicated or handled when you when you have like it's not it's not just like economics will help avoid disputes proper economic policies but they won't avoid them perfectly so what do you do when you have disputes and and legal theory fills that gap john hasness is a thinker that's influenced me a lot in that and it was through uh one of his articles um uh the obviousness of anarchy, which is a great article you can find online for free. And through that footnotes, I found the enterprise of law, which he was citing uh, quite a bit in there. And I read that book and it just completely, I was already an anarcho-capitalist when I read that, but it just completely changed, but also strengthened my, my views on this. I think I can art- articulate these ideas so much better because I have a much better understanding of the legal side of the equation that, that frankly, uh, the literature exists out there, but it just gets overshadowed by the economic stuff. Well, that's probably true because the economic stuff tends to have more bite, more oh, yeah. obvious implications. You know, so uh, and, and and the joke in my head was <laughs> that well, so we're gonna we're gonna use uh, Hans's physical removal, and only you know, there'll be a handful of people who will get the joke, <laughs> um, and then of course you know Pinochet's helicopter, which is. Another almost, I don't even know if that's an inside joke anymore. I'm not sure. The, the stuff that I'm really familiar with as far as the legal side goes, which gets only into IP as Kinsella's work, which if you, you get a little, especially academics, you mentioned to them just, and it's said to be incendiary, say that IP doesn't exist and just you'd think you dumped a gallon of hot water on them. What are you saying? So it's, <laughs> unless you're prepared to defend the position, it's fun to watch the reaction. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, I appreciate your time this morning, although for you, it's well, afternoon. Thank you for having me on again. Uh, where can people find you? Do you have any uh, website or uh, something that you want people to, to go and look and find your stuff? I'm, I'm spread out all over the place uh, for libertarians because I always start, you know, doing things and then... PhD interrupts it. Um, I have a YouTube channel under the the name Anarchris, which is where I just kind of have some simple videos, kind of putting out anarchy ideas. I think it's been like two or three years since I've updated a video. Uh, and that's mostly just because both myself and the guy who edits the videos for me, we just got busy with life and obligations. PhD for me, work for him. Um, you can find more stuff from me on uh, the Mises Wire, Mises.org than anywhere else. Just type in my name. I have the podcast Historical Controversies there, which unfortunately I had to put on indefinite hiatus also because of the PhD. But I think there's something like 98 or 96 episodes that I completed before um, having to to, uh, uh, move away from it. And I also contribute articles there quite regularly. I try try to do an article a week. Uh, I don't quite keep up with that, but I do write articles for them more regularly than anybody else. And then of course the Austro Libertarian magazine. So far I've had an article in each issue. I've already sent CJ my article for the fourth issue on theory and history, um, talking about, you know, contrasting praxeology and history as the two fields, the two sciences of human action in Mises's view, um, hopefully combating some, some misconceptions about that, that, that I hear, um, from time to time. 
Uh, so unless CJ decides that it's it's uh, not up to snuff to run an article, that should be in there. So I I, I hope to uh, submit an article to to his magazine uh, for every issue. Um, so those would be the three places I think: YouTube, Mises.org, and Austro Libertarian Magazine, where you can keep up with my thoughts or writings or whatever else. It might All right. Be. Well, that's a good start anyway. And once this pesky PhD is out of the way, maybe you can pick up on some of those things. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. All right. Well, thanks again for your time. Have a splendid afternoon and a good weekend. And I know you don't really care, but who's Florida playing? Auburn, I think this week. Oh, go Auburn. Yeah, Sorry. I know. <laughs> Mises Institute. I'm really, I'm really PhD, torn on right? that, by the way. I'm really torn on that. Can they, can they both lose? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not a sports guy, so I don't, I don't keep up with it. That's all right. All right. Well, have a good have a good afternoon. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye bye. All right, folks. That's gonna do it. I'll post a link to the excerpt of Chris's article on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash fifty five, as well as links to some of the articles and books Chris mentioned. You can also search for those books through the Amazon tab on the podcast page. In addition to the link to the excerpt, I'll add an affiliate link to the Austro-Libertarian magazine, which is available in digital or print formats. C.J. Engel, the editor, has done a very impressive job creating this magazine. His efforts and the content from the various writers are well worth the subscription. And... Speaking of subscriptions, please do subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcatcher. Have a good week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. Anyway, are, are we getting started? I see it looks like it's recording. Yeah, I hit, start, I hit record just because I didn't want to forget to do it because sure. I've done that too. <laughs> okay, well, we can get into it. I, I, it's a study day for me anyway. So Okay, so so you have a big time budget. No, study day for me means I, I have work to do after this. So Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, then, then you have incentive to be brief, sort of, <laughs> so to speak. Okay, well... Um, I'm sort of looking forward to this, and and I've written, uh, I've got some good. I, th- I th- I'm I think it's going to be good. I'm there's, good. I hope I don't disappoint. I was trying to remo- review my article just a few no, minutes ago. I don't I don't think that's yeah. going to be the case because there's just well we'll we'll get into well, that. But there's, yeah, there's it'll be so fun. much about what it is. I I think it, it applies to both. Socialism and capitalism. I think people just don't know what it is, and they sure they they. It's like AOC. I want I want impeachable offenses to be whatever makes me feel bad. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, you're allowed. That's fine, but you don't get to have that privilege when you're an elected member of Congress. You can have that privilege as as the TV watcher. Nobody really cares, but that's not the same thing. So, uh, 